0: Focus on your mentors because senior executives love giving advice to junior people because they're going to retire. And this business has to go on, right? It will go on for a long, long time. Uh, It will continue to change, but it's going to change because of the impact that the younger generation coming up is going to have on the business. So I think senior executives understand they need younger people they need great ideas they want to mentor and challenge younger people
1: Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have Kirk Pedersen, the president at Sightline Hospitality, with us today. Kirk, thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you, Steve. Uh, It's fun to be here. Well, Kirk, we start
1: every podcast here the same way. What was your very first job in hospitality?
0: Uh, Mine was really food and beverage uh, side. I worked in country clubs uh, when I was in high school. So that's really what got me in the hospitality. But I think it started much earlier for me in Hawaii when I was 10 years old. Uh, I, I got the real itch to be uh, in hotels, right? I didn't really know what that meant at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was sitting in the lobby of the the Hyatt Regency in Waikiki Beach. And I saw the general manager walk through the lobby with, uh, you know, being followed by the say it would look like the sales team. Yep. And, you know, the GM had this floral, uh, you know, Aloha shirt on and uh, all of the, uh, the sales team following behind, you know, had these flowing dresses and beautiful hair blowing in the wind. And I, I, I watched this go by me in the lobby. And I said to my dad, when he got back from the desk, I said, who, who is that guy? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he said, well, th- probably the general manager of the hotel. And I said, well, what, is, what does that mean? And he said, oh, well, you, you can go to school for that. And, you know, there's somebody that has to run, you know, every hotel. And I looked at him at that time and I said, well, that would be a really cool job. I'd like to do that. But never really thought about it again, uh, you know, until I was in high school. And, you know, I worked in country clubs and and restaurants. And I went and did a career placement survey with my advisor, my high school advisor. In high school? And she called me back into her office and she said, hey, have you ever thought about the hospitality industry? And I said, well, yeah, I like restaurants. And I always thought hotels were pretty cool. And she said, well, it's, you know, your your score is off the charts, right? It doesn't recommend you do anything but uh, hospitality. And uh, so, yeah, at the time I was going to UNLV every summer with our high school basketball team to Jerry Tarkanian's basketball camps. Wow! And you know, I asked my advisor, "Well, where do you where do you go to school for hospitality?" And she said, "Well, UNLV is good, or you can go to Cornell or Michigan State has a program." And there weren't as many schools that had programs, you know, that, that have programs today. And as soon as she said Las Vegas, I thought, "Well, that, that's done." You know, I've been to Vegas so many times. I know mm-hmm. the university. I've stayed in the dorms there in the summertime. Uh, and what, you know, 20-year-old or 18-year-old or kid at that time, I guess. 18-year-old kid doesn't want to go to Vegas. That's oh. how it all started, Steve, yeah. And so when you were in high
1: school, because this is where I like to find out certain things, yeah. you're in the country club, is because you, hey, I want to be that GM, or was this like a summertime job that you had or during the year, or was it you always knew you wanted to be in it?
0: Well, I wanted to make money, and, uh, you know, my dad was always a member of a, of a country club.
1: Now, where were you growing up when you were doing this? Southern
0: Cal- this is Southern California. All right, Southern California. Uh, in the Thousand Oaks area. Yeah. And so I always saw, you know, all of these you know guys working in the club. And I thought, man, that'd be great to drive a golf cart around or be the guy that picks up the balls on the range or be the guy that works a banquet, you know, and mm-hmm. delivers the food to the tables. And so I, I literally asked my dad, you know, how do I get a job in one of the country clubs in town? And very simply, he said, you fill out a resume and you walk it in there and you look presentable and you'll probably get hired because they're always looking for people. And that's what I did at North Ranch Country Club in in Westlake Village. And yeah, they hired me literally on the spot and I started. You you know, know, I was a runner and kind of a bar back in the 19th hole, right in in the men's 19th hole.
1: So, sometimes as a kid, I remember as being like a 16 year old kid, like working in a kitchen at a bar, you start working with adults, like, and they talk differently and speak differently. Did you kind of have your eyes wide open at that time, or was it a little shocking, or do you adjust pretty quick?
0: I had my eyes wide open at that time. I was a ball boy for the Dallas Cowboys as a kid, man, and uh, was in the locker room with professional athletes from a a young age. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I had heard all of that, right? I'd seen quite a bit. Uh, So, the kitchen. The kitchen and working with adults really didn't bother me at that time. I think my eyes were already wide open. So was your dad in sports? Am I reading that? Is that what was going on? Or are you? No, no, my dad wasn't in sports. The Dallas Cowboys had their uh, summer training camp in Thousand Oaks, uh, where I grew up, and one of my buddies, you know, in school, his uncle was the kicking coach, and so we got summer jobs working for the Dallas Cowboys while they were there doing their training. So yeah, it was it was a really great experience. So you're doing that. You're
1: going to basketball camp at UNLV when Larry Johnson and Stacey Ogman and they're at their top yep. know, are probably hanging around there. So that's cool yep. as well. And you decide to go to college to study this right off the bat. Is that what you tell your family? Like, hey, i I'm going to UNLV and I'm studying hospitality.
0: Yeah, it was it was an easy decision. Uh, I think I applied to like four other schools. But as soon as UNLV came back and said you're in, I mean, there was there was no other choice. I was going to Vegas. I had made up my mind. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was comfortable too, Steve, uh, because I had spent you know summers there. And yeah, you knew it. I, I knew it. And uh, so, yeah, it, it wasn't a very difficult transition at all. It was still a drive, you know, to Southern California where my family was. So I could go back on long weekends if I wanted to. And so it became an easier choice than going to Cornell and upstate right, New York. Yes. And you're yeah. in UNLV
1: and you're in Vegas with all the mega hotels that everyone really dreams about working in. Yeah. What was it like when you were at school? Did you have to go get some hours at these hotels or was it did you have a job? What were you doing?
0: Yeah, so part of the curriculum uh, at UNLV was you had to get half of your hours in restaurant and half of your hours in hotel. Um, and so I went a little bit of a different route. I, I became pretty good friends with the dean of the hotel school. And he came to me one day and he said, Hey, you know, Kirk, there's this internship program in Japan uh, with A&A hotels, and they ask us to send, you know, good representatives of the school over every year. And I wanted to nominate you and this other guy uh, that I was friends with. And I, I didn't really know much about Japan at the time, but I thought, right. well, if I can go to another country and work for a, a hotel brand and get my hotel hours why not do that versus you know staying here and uh, the 115 degree heat in the summer in vegas and, right. and working in one of the casinos so i went that route uh and worked for you know went and worked for a a hotels in japan and then for my restaurant side i came back uh, to vegas and i worked for tony romas uh off off insane. strip and i was working in the kitchen and you know doing you know the line and. So I, I got all my food and beverage hours, but I didn't ever work in one of the mega hotels in That's Vegas. so interesting.
1: Yeah. And so when you're in Japan, we've talked to a couple of guests that have worked in Japan. What was it like for you? Was it kind of life? It's got to be like a different world as an 18, 19-year-old kid going to Japan. What was it yeah, like for you? I
0: mean, again, I, I think I was pretty naive, right? I just I threw myself into a situation and whatever was thrown at me, I just handled Mm -hmm. Uh, But I tell you, it was pretty easy. I mean, the people of Japan are so gracious. I loved the culture. Uh, The hotel world is very different there. Uh, I spent a lot of time working in the banquets department, uh, a lot of time working in the housekeeping department, uh, and then front office. And the housekeeping department was really great because the women that were typically working in the housekeeping department uh, weren't young. Right. They were like your grandmother. And, uh, you know, I was in the A&A Hotel in Niigata, which is a smaller town. But this was the largest hotel in the town. Mm -hmm. And every day for lunch or their break, they would take a big blanket and they would go in the presidential suite if it wasn't occupied. And they put the blanket down on the floor and everybody would have to take their shoes off and they would go and sit around in a circle around the blanket and everyone would bring food from their home to share with everybody else around, uh, you know, around the circle. And so, you know, the first time I sat down, you know, they told me I had to remove my shoes and I had to go through all this stuff and I'm learning and none of them speak English and I really don't speak Japanese. So it's all, you know, hand motions. And uh, I just, I formed this relationship with these ladies, uh, you know, again, like my grandmother and they just embraced me, and it was so fun every day. I would go to the market after work, and I would figure out what I was going to bring in to share with the ladies the next day. And it was just—it was a really cool experience and in, in culture. And then we would work really hard, uh, you know, in cleaning all these rooms. And the big difference at the time, you know, smoking was so prevalent in Japan that every room you went into to clean was to just smelled a of smoke. And so that bothered me uh, at at the time. But, uh, you know, as we got through it and then working in the banquet department and seeing how a Japanese wedding was conducted. Very, very cool. Uh, I mean, the bride changes outfits, you know, three or four times. And uh, the way they, you know, deliver the beers to the table and serve the beers. And it was just it was a really neat operation and figuring all that out at that age. Really, again, opened my eyes to something different. Uh, Hospitality was very, very different than it was in the U.S. Did you ever go
1: back? Is that somewhere like you you wanted to go back to, or is that the only time you went? I
0: I haven't been back. Uh, I keep on saying every year now. My wife is uh, thirty percent Japanese now, and she hasn't been to Japan. So (laughs) we keep on saying we need to go to Japan. We need to go to Japan. Uh, And Japan has become you know big destination again, right? They went through a, a slow period, but they're back. Uh, and a lot of people from the U.S. Are, are you know, putting Japan high on their bucket list.
1: It's on my list. I'm trying to convince my wife. So you will yeah. have to go first and let me know how it goes. Yeah. Uh, but back to your journey here. So, man, you have a fun time in Japan. Then you, you're heading over to good old Tony Roma's to finish those hours. Yeah. You end up graduating. And are yeah. you like most people where you know exactly where you're going out of the hospitality school? Or did you have to go search for your first job out of school?
0: Yeah. So I, I went to a career fair. That mm-hmm. they had at the school, and uh, I went to the dean. You know, before the career fair, and I said, "Well, what what should I do?" And he said, "He said everybody's going to go stand in line to talk to four seasons, yep. Ritz Carlton, Hilton, Marriott. Right? They're they're going to want to talk to all those companies, and the lines are going to be really long." He said, "If I were you, I'm just giving you my personal advice. You can do whatever you want to do with it, but if I were you." Uh, I would go talk to the smaller guys. I would talk to the management companies. I would get in their management training programs. And the reason I would do that is because you're going to get a lot more attention. And if you're really good at what you do, you're going to advance in your job really fast. And so I went and met with Diana Meisenhelter. I still remember her today uh, with American General Hospitality and they were out of Dallas, Texas. Uh, They were a small management company at the time. I think they had 13 hotels and they had started a management training program and they were looking for one individual uh, out of UNLV. And I formed a relationship with her, you know, immediately in this conversation uh, at a career fair and she sent me an offer. And I remember I was making, I think it was $20,000 a year you uh, Right out of school. Yes. I felt mm-hmm. really great about that. Yep. And uh, I moved to Dallas, Texas, and I started working in the Embassy Suites Love Field, uh, which was located right next door to the corporate office mm. uh, of American General Hospitality. It's a good place to be. And yeah, well, it was great that I was right next door to the corporate office because that was really uh, the position that catapulted me into business development and doing what you know what I've been doing for the last you know 20 some years. Every senior executive at the corporate office would come over and have lunch in the employee cafeteria at the Embassy Suites right next door because it was a free lunch, right? Of course. Yeah. And so that's where I met uh, Steve Jones, uh, you know who was the CEO of the company and Steve would come over and literally have lunch with me and the housekeepers.
1: That's uh, so the position you were in you were in housekeeping?
0: Well I did housekeeping and I did it was a management training program. so we okay did so you everything. rotated. Yeah, we rotated around. and Bruce Wiles was there at the time and Russ Valentine, you know these are all guys who have gone on to do great things in their career. Mm-hmm. but I had access to those guys on a weekly basis. So were you and,
1: trying to sit with them in the cafeteria? Because sometimes that's a little political. Like, hey, who's the new guy trying to sit at this table, or they come sit with you, like certain leaders do? What yeah,
0: I will tell you. At at the time, it wasn't intimidating at all. These guys mm-hmm. were very approachable. Uh, the culture there was fantastic, and and when you're when you're that age, you don't you don't realize it at the time, right? Uh, but they were so open door, uh, and that was a little different for the time too. But they had, you know, no issue coming and just sitting down next to you at the table and saying, hey, what are you doing here? What do you like about your job? What do you not like about your job? And then talk about things outside of the hotel business. So it was it was really a unique situation. I was very, very fortunate because that's what led uh, to, you know, Diana Meisenhelter again came mm-hmm. over to me at the property and she said, hey, you have formed a pretty good relationship with these guys. They're looking for an analyst in business development. Is that right. something you've ever thought about? And at the time I wanted to be a GM of a resort hotel, wear my Aloha shirt, do, right. my, do my thing. And uh, Diana convinced me, you ought to try this out. You're young in your career. And if you get this opportunity, this opportunity may not come around anytime soon. You know, again, and so I went and interviewed with Bruce Wiles, you know, the formal interview. And Bruce comes across as being somewhat intimidating. And I, I, I went up into the office and his executive assistant said to me, you know, Kirk, his, his bite is, big, is, is not nearly as big as his bark. Uh, and he's a real softy, but you just you, you got to stand up to him. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I walked into Bruce's office and I sat across the table from him. or his desk. And he got up from around his desk and he came over and he took the chair next to mine and he moved it so that he was facing me directly. And he sat down and he looked at me and he said, why are you here? And why should I hire you for an analyst position? And I was a little shocked, right? But remembering what his executive assistant said, I said, well, Bruce, I'm young and I'll do anything you ask me to do. And if you don't like me, you can fire me. And he said, okay, you start tomorrow. And wow. that, was, that was it, Steve. Uh, there was no interview. That was it. And uh, I, I went to uh, you know, work w- with them. And there was a, a guy, Chris Ivey, uh, at the time, who was kind of their senior analyst uh, and younger business development guy. But he was extremely organized and he mentored me and he I learned so much from him on modeling and you know what that meant and how to you know, write business plans and offering memorandums and, and all of that stuff. We grew from 13 hotels to 50 hotels in about a year. That's amazing. And you know I worked with that team to build out every one of those budgets, every one of those pro formas, every one of those OMs. And so I was just thrown into it, Steve. And, you know, I was sleeping under my desk, you know, going back over to the hotel to eat when I could eat for free, uh, you know, just doing whatever I could to learn as much as I could at the time. And, well, you didn't you know, have a
1: finance background at the time, right? You're a hospitality grad and you jump into this role with one question interview and you, you handled that question well.
0: So I minored in finance. Uh, Got it. All right, so you had a little bit of experience. I always liked the finance side of the business. Got it. Uh, but I I was doing that more at UNLV to understand the PL. I wanted to be able to know, you know, cost per occupied room and and how to analyze these statistics. And so economics, I really excelled at.
1: And you things. liked it. So you were in it. What is it for someone who's never been in it? Like I've only been in operations all the way through. What yeah. was a normal day like for you as you're grinding away building this company from 13 to 50 hotels?
0: CPOR analysis. I literally had P&Ls from all of our other hotels. And granted, the technology wasn't nearly as good then, right? Right. Uh, So I was going through hard printed out P&Ls and calculating the CPORs so that I could use that CPOR in a budget for another hotel that was kind of like that hotel. Yeah. But I would just just get by. And so I got to the point where I – you know, I, I could remember what that CPOR should be for that type of hotel all the way through the PML. So that's what I was doing. And you know, we were looking. You know, the American General ended up going public, yep. and so you know, we had all of this capital to put out. And so we were looking at acquisitions every day, portfolios, and putting all this stuff together. So there was a lot of data that we were going through, and then. You know, you would, you would get to the point where you were done with these proformas. Uh, and then, you know, Steve would walk in or Bruce would walk in and they'd look over your shoulder at the computer. And they already knew in their head what, in a why they needed to hit, right? Right. And they'd look over your shoulder and they'd start questioning you like, well, are you sure we can't shave a little bit off there? Yeah. Are you sure we can't add a yeah. little bit more there? And by the end of the, you know, by the end of it, they had, really written the pro forma right yeah, the, we need this irr let's go what that's, is exactly it? Right. that's exactly <laughs> right uh but it was just grinding steve but it was fun grinding i mean we were we were flying with mark elliott uh and his plane all over the country looking at hotels and you know if you're that age and you're flying private planes with brokers and going to great dinners and seeing yeah. all these cities that you've never seen before it was a, it was a phenomenal experience. I was again extremely lucky to be at the right place at the right time, and I took advantage of that. That access to those senior people at the time was really what you know gave me the opportunity.
1: Yeah, almost um, like a, just a little bit of luck, right? You you yes. listen to the dean,
0: Absolutely. You went to the
1: city that happened to be next to the corporate office, and and you yep. put in the work. Yeah, so you start. How long are you with them? How long do you grow with this company?
0: Well, it wasn't very long. Uh, I think it was two two plus or minus years before we merged with Capstar and Paul Wetzel and and that whole team, and you know Dave McCoslin and you know the, all all of the all the mm-hmm. guys that are still in our business today, uh, but have gone on to go you know do great things. So we move we merged with Capstar and Bruce Wiles was staying with. The merged entity to be the chief investment officer, and Bruce asked me if I would move to DC, and uh, so you know I picked up everything and uh, moved to DC and started working for the you know combined Maristar, and uh, you know it was the it was the same deal right we were still trying to grow right the REIT was now larger and we were you know we had a partnership with Lehman Brothers and we were out buying hotels with Lehman Brothers. Uh, so at that you know at that point now I had access to real institutional capital. Uh, Solomon Smith Barney was a very large client of ours at American General. But then really the largest you know, largest client or banking relationship was Lehman Brothers. So I got to see that side of the business. And there was a gentleman, Michael O'Melia, uh, who worked at Lehman that was really great in kind of mentoring me on that side and how their business worked and how they allocated capital and what deals were attractive to them and why and why they would partner with a Maristar versus partnering with somebody else. And uh, so... That was really my my view into uh, into you know the investment banking world. So once you're around that for
1: the first time and seeing billions of dollars kind of moving mm-hmm. around, was it like wow? What, what am I doing
0: here? Or was it like you felt like you belonged because you would been riding with these guys? The numbers end up just becoming more zeros. The process was the same. I think it got a little bit more political. Mm -hmm. as you got bigger, you know, those conversations about Steve looking over my shoulder and Bruce looking over my shoulder, that became Paul Wetzel looking over my shoulder. But it was the same thing. We were just looking at portfolios of 20 hotels. Right. Instead um, of one or two. Instead Mm -hmm. of one or two. And it became billions, uh, you know, instead of millions. And so it wasn't intimidating uh, to me at the time. The numbers just got bigger. But the process was very, very similar. And again, I couldn't have been surrounded by a better group of people. Paul Wetzel today is still one of my biggest supporters and, and best mentors. And that you know that goes way back. And it's just the relationship that we formed at the time. and when you're in the trenches, you know working with very senior people, if you stand up for yourself, and you work really hard and you know your numbers and you know what you're supposed to know, I think those, those people respect you. And they need guys and girls like that, right? They need people that they can trust uh, because they can't do it all. And so if you have that mindset, right, that you're needed. um, And if you were, again, I worked, I worked hard, Steve. Uh, I mean, I know you, you know what it's like, right? But there was no, there was no vacation. There was no nine to five. There was no, that didn't exist. Oh, 16, 17 hour days. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. You did what it took to get it done. You I mean, there were no weekends. This was, Hey guys, we're growing and we need to grow fast. The whole team's here from on Saturday. We need to see you at seven 30 on Saturday morning. And that's what you did, right? You didn't question it. You, you did it. But again, when you're in the trenches on Saturday morning with those guys You form these relationships, uh, and those last a long time.
1: I've seen it, especially in those tough days, the ones you're grinding away. That's when you forge those relationships that you keep for your whole life. I've seen it, and just same with me. I still talk to people I started with. I want to kind of fast forward because I want to be cognizant of your time. How do you start to grow and you become this executive director of hospitality at Morgan Stanley? How does that start to evolve? Was it mentors looking out for you? Was it people that you had worked with that had transitioned? How does that start happening?
0: Yeah, you, you nailed both of them. A client uh, back at Solomon from American General uh, was at Morgan Stanley, and he was heading up asset management uh, for the Americas, and he needed hotel people. And he reached out to an ex-COO of American General mm-hmm. and asked him if he would come over. And so he joined and then his first phone call was to me to see if I would, you know, join him to kind of work on the portfolio stuff together at Morgan Stanley. And so it was really relationships. And, you know, Steve, I went to, I went to Paul Wetzel at that time, because again, I had formed this really good relate working relationship with him. And I was just very honest with him. I said, Paul, I got an offer from Morgan Stanley to go to New York and work in their asset management group. And they they're, you know, Mesref is trying to buy a bunch of hotels. And this is who called me. This is who asked me to go. If you were in my shoes, what would you do? And Paul knew at the time that he was very close to striking a deal with uh, Blackstone uh, Mm -hmm. to uh, to sell Maristar. And Paul looked at me and he said, you know, I hate to see people go, but I think that's a great career move for you, Kirk. You should take it. You should go to New York. And so, again, I didn't hesitate beyond that. We you know, sold the house and packed up and and moved to New York. And so, again, it was, it was Paul supporting me and, you know, pushing me in the right direction. But it was also, you know, relationships that I had formed two jobs ago uh, with people that I just worked well with that said, hey, Kirk's in that role. I can trust him. He'll work hard. He'll do a good job. I want him on the team. You know, not burning a bridge and always working hard paid off.
1: And it pays off, and you, you're the executive director of hospitality at Morgan Stanley. Yeah. How many people do you have reporting to you at that time? Is it just you and a small team? Is it a big team? Like, what is that like?
0: Yeah, so I, I reported to uh, Bob Karch, who was uh, kind of overseeing the hotel division, and then we reported to John Buza, who oversaw all asset management for the Americas, and uh, then we had analysts. Like in the pool, at, like you would have at any other major investment bank, mm-hmm. and so the analysts didn't really work for you; uh, they worked with you, and so it was really the operating partners, right, that technically worked for us because uh, we were the majority of the equity, and uh, and they were, you know, they were grinding every day and, and reporting up to us at Morgan Stanley. Uh, that was a that was a really interesting position for me to be in because. I was much younger than a lot of the guys that right, were essentially reporting to me on the operating partner side. Cause
1: you're really only 10 years out of school. So how old are you like 30, 31, 32, right? Like yeah. not the oldest, but not the youngest. Yeah. But you're in there,
0: but young in my career and in my experience. And, you know, we, we formed a partnership with pyramid advisors and Rick Kelleher and, uh, Warren fields and uh, Jim Dina and, Again, I couldn't be or have been surrounded by a better group of guys. And there, there were definitely times when I would suggest to a Rick uh, or a Jim or a Warren, "Hey guys, I don't, I don't think we should be doing this. I don't think we should be spending these dollars. I don't think, I don't think I'm going to approve that." And seeing the look on a Rick's face, who, I mean, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Rick could run <bring laughs> circles around me, right? He knew the business, you know, a hundred times more than I knew the business. Uh, and there were times where I could see Rick get frustrated and that I got to deal with this 30-something-year-old kid telling me, you know, we're not going to do this. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember a couple times, you know, having Rick, you know, slam his fist down on a boardroom table or, you know, get frustrated with something. And, you know, we ended up working through those uh, issues obviously I didn't want that and we worked together and we we worked it out we had, you know a very successful partnership and still today I love those guys uh, and and we have a wonderful relationship. I still even though we're a competing management company now, mm-hmm. uh, I still talk to the pyramid guys at every single conference we go to and I wish them all the best every single time I see them. Uh, so again created relationships with people.
1: Yeah. You get to meet a lot of people in that role and you do it for five years. You're, you've met, I'm sure hundreds of people that you still talk to today, but then you make a change, you get back into the, the hotel management world. How does that happen when you join over at the next group?
0: Yeah. Well, we were, we were sitting at Mesref, uh, and, uh, you know, investment and we're, when you're working with an investment bank, that's in real estate, you have this thing called investment committee that takes on a different form that it takes on in most companies. Because you you have individuals from all different areas within the real estate group that are part of this investment committee and don't necessarily know hotels, right? Their expertise right. is oftentimes in apartments or, you know, single like family, family homes, yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when we would find opportunities, we would put this whole package together, bring them to investment committee. And uh, I wasn't getting anything approved at investment committee. I mean, this is 2010 11 yeah, tough times. Uh, and they were tough times. And I kept on going to investment committee saying, guys, this is when we should be doing it, right? This is when we should back up the truck. We need to go. We need to go. We need to go. And there were so many portfolios, so many deals that we brought to committee that we just kept on getting turned down on. And one deal that we did in 2009 uh, was a big deal in Waikiki beach with charters, lodging group. And uh, at the time, 2009 was a really tough time to get a deal yes. And we, I shouldn't say we, Rob Klein and Makibera found this deal in Waikiki and it was called the Ocean Resort. It was 426 rooms and it had been run by a Japanese uh, you know, family who really hadn't taken care of the building. And they hadn't maximized, you know, ADRs or occupancy. There was a huge gap between where they were performing and where the other hotels in the market were performing. And I mean, this was like a deal on a silver platter, right? right. I mean, perfect deal, right? And
1: can't replicate it. It's one of a place.
0: I had moved from New York to San Francisco uh, because when it, while I was at Mesraf, we uh, we acquired CNL and bought a bunch of hotels and resorts in Hawaii and so i was commuting from new york to hawaii and it was just it it was it was too much and so uh, Mesrev had an office in san francisco and we agreed that i would move to san francisco and kind of oversee everything on the west and bob karch would stay in new york and and oversee more of the stuff uh, on the east and i met rob klein and we you know we went to lunch and he said hey i've got this deal in waikiki i can't get any traction from anybody on it everybody's saying no and I said, well, Rob, send it over to me. You know, I'll take a look. And this was really the first time I'd met Rob. And I got back to my office and he sent me the information. I looked through it. And I, again, I thought, this is a deal. It's, you know, it's just teed up, right? It's mm-hmm. a perfect deal. And we just barely got that deal through investment committee. It's the best hotel deal, Mesref I think is still ever done to this day. I mean, it was a forty percent plus IRR type deal. I mean, the promotes were huge. It was a great, great, That's amazing. Deal. And I, re- I met Rob through that process. I was his, you know, contact at Morgan Stanley. We were the majority equity in that deal. But you know, Charter's did a great job. They worked really hard. Uh, they were scrappy. They figured it out. Uh, and then they had this management company called Kakua Hospitality, which you know, this was a big management contract for Kakua. But Kikua worked really hard and they did a good job and they established a great local team. But I got to know Rob and Maki through that process. And then when I was frustrated at Morgan Stanley that I wasn't getting anything else through investment committee, I started looking for another opportunity. And uh, I was ready to move back to D.C. to go back to the REIT world. And I went and I had lunch with Rob Klein in San Francisco. And I said, Rob, you know what do you know about this group and the senior people at this group in D.C.? You know, he's been in the business, and he knew everybody Mm -hmm. in the business. And he said, "Kirk, you're not moving to Washington D.C." I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "You're staying here in San Francisco. You're going to join us at Charters, and you're going to be our chief operating officer and chief investment officer." And I said, "Okay." (laughs) It was it was literally that easy, Steve. You know, I I didn't feel like I had a ton of leverage in negotiating with Rob right for the position at the time, but they were very anxious. To get money out and uh morgan stanley really wasn't anxious to get money out and uh i had seen the multiple and the uh promote on the operating partner side of the business versus the multiple and the promote on your side mm-hmm. on, on the, the the gp uh you know side of this or or the lp side of the business and i thought oh, man if i can get in on that side of the business that would be fantastic and the charters platform is that, right? Uh, they want every employee at the company to invest in every deal that they do. Uh, it can be as small as thousand dollars, five thousand dollars, whatever it is. They want you to have skin in the game. But then they open up the promote uh, and share the promote with every employee that has money invested in those deals. And so I thought, well, what a great platform to get That's involved! Amazing. Mm-hmm. I really like those guys. So, but again, Steve, it was it was a relationship.
1: Uh, that you had
0: before with Rob and Maki that made Rob say, Hey, let's do this together. Uh, now I've been with them for what, 12 years. And, you know, in the middle of that, uh, 12 years, uh, we at the, on the charter side had put out, we would put out our fair share of equity and Rob and Maki wanted to pull back a little bit at the time and not really invest in much in real estate because pricing was getting pretty frothy, mm-hmm. but we had this management company. Called Kakua Hospitality, and the management company uh, was run by Phil Tafano, uh, who is still with us, uh, uh, you know, today. And Phil is just one of those classic, you know, great operators. He's really, really good at, at operations. And what they had never really done with Kakua was lean into growing the company as a third-party, uh, you know, management company. management company. And what was happening at charters was they were selling all of their assets, right? They were promote, IRR driven, IRR driven. Right, to sell, make the sell. return. And uh, Kakua was really you know, operating for charters. And so every time charters would sell an asset, we were selling it unencumbered by management. Most teams were bringing in their own management company or whatever they were doing. So we were losing contracts and it was really hard to keep the management company afloat when you didn't have that revenue coming in from these contracts.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. So Rob asked me to jump over to Kukua to be the president of Kukua and kind of run that, you know, that growth vehicle and really convert the hotel or the management company from a captive charters management company to a real third-party management company. And so that's what we've been working on the last five years. COVID was not easy for anybody in that process. But we've successfully... You know, grown the portfolio to twenty plus hotels, and we only operate one hotel for charters. And so we, you know, now today, Steve, are in growth mode, and we've really, we've really established ourselves as experts in the independent and soft branded space. And we did that for a reason, you know, because it's it's really difficult to compete with Ambridge or Interstate uh, at yeah. the time or Pyramid. And Highgate's out there uh, now and, and all these guys. And, and Highgate. And, I mean, these guys, it's a small world, Steve, right? And all these guys are good at what they do, right? There's nobody in our space that's really bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the relationship that you have with your manager. And there is a perception that certain management companies are better at certain things than other management companies. And when we saw uh, the consolidation in the management company world, primarily on the West Coast, um, Everybody was gone. There weren't any third-party independent management companies anymore. Uh, We decided to really lean into that. And, you know, every new hotel deal that, you know, has been done uh, over the last few years has been an autograph or a tribute or a tapestry or an independent hotel. And so we've really leaned in there and, you know, positioned ourselves as the go-to independent third-party uh, management company for you know independent boutique and, and lifestyle soft-branded hotels. Uh, so that's where we're focused and that's where we're going. But this whole journey has just kind of happened,
1: Steve. Yeah, right? by, by relationships. So that's where I want to rewind slightly, but I have one question. So we haven't talked about Sightline. So is Sightline part of that as well, as part of the Charters group? Sorry,
0: I, I, I yeah. just kind of blurred over that. So when when I moved from Charters over to Kikua yes we said we, we need to make a conscious effort to separate the management company from the investment vehicle because right. everyone in the investment community viewed that management company as the captive management arm for charters right and so we we went out and um and tried to find another company to merge with to give us a little bit more scale but also enable us to just Get rid of the old names, start something new and start marketing and and putting a bunch of PR out with that new name. So that's where Sightline came in. We merged with Filament Hospitality, who was very focused on independent, uh, unique hotels across the country. They had much more on the East Coast uh, than, than we did. So it was a good mix of having East and West Coast. Uh, but really, I mean, the whole goal there was to be able to establish a new brand and a new name in a third-party management company that people would recognize as being totally separate from charters. Yeah. And
1: that that makes sense. Now I completely understand. So now that I've got the whole story, I want to touch on one point and rewind a little bit. So you'd been in the investment world. You're looking at deals, you're helping companies grow, you make great relationships, but when you get back to being now, but you become chief operating officer, you become president. You have to oversee operations and oversee what's going on. You're not just investing the dollars anymore. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? Was that a hard turn to make, or was it something that was natural? say, "All right, I know what to do here. I'm going to lean on what I know, or I'm going to lean on good leaders."
0: You know, my my operations background and going back, you know, all the way to my management training days, working in Dallas in yeah. days, right. I think when you're in the operation, you you understand how the operation works. I think what you don't understand, uh, or most people don't understand, is the economics of the bigger picture. This is a business. There's a reason why you're doing what you're doing. And, right. you know, understanding the P&L is one thing, but understanding an investor's objective, right? Are they an IRR investor? Are they a family office, right? Or are they you know, a a debt fund from Germany or that like everybody's got a different investment objective. And I think because I was on that Morgan Stanley side and on the real estate investment trust side and seeing all of the different ownership groups and how they operate, it really gave me a clear picture of the big picture. Mm -hmm. And so getting back into operations, you do like, again, you start thinking about in my case it was more about how are we getting the consumer to hit the book now button versus what's my cost per occupied room right. you know in this department you know phil like i said phil tufano who's still our chief operating officer and partner in the business he's an absolute pro like he's an operations guy through and through i, I don't need to i don't need to focus on that phil, phil is focused on that Right, I'm worried about you know how we operate as a company, right? How we manage our own P and L, how we're perceived in the investment uh, world, right? And how people hire us and why they hire us and uh, how we operate as a company uh, to really be an expert in this niche. Uh, but I don't have to do the day to day, Steve. I'm really lucky that I've got a great partner and Phil that that does that. In, I in love school. hearing that.
1: And, and I like that you're touching on something now and I want to get your point of view. So I don't usually do this on the podcast, but you're building a company with unique places. I am I was looking at your portfolio. You have mm-hmm. some unique hotels. Yeah, you have some older brands on there, but most of your hotels are very unique. Yes. Is that something you're seeing that you want to lean into because that's what travelers are wanting more? That's what yeah. I'm starting to see a lot. It's like, all right, they want unique. They want something different that they can talk about and remember for a yeah. lifetime. Is that what you're seeing as you're building out this company?
0: We, we've been seeing that for the last five plus years, uh, Steve. And I think the brands are all seeing it too, right? They're mm-hmm. all shifting. And so, yeah, I think the, the demographics of the consumer continue to change, right? And people are looking for experiences. You look at where the consumer is spending money today. It's not on Gucci, Right, it's not you know high-end brands. It's on experiences. Right, they really want to be able to take a photograph and post it to show their friends and family what a great time they're having and how awesome their life is. Yes, their life isn't driven by consumer goods. It's driven by experiences, and uh, I don't see that changing for a long time, Steve. And so I think because we've we've positioned ourselves where we've positioned ourselves. Owners and developers of those types of products are gravitating to us. I mean, if you saw the things that we're working on now, you'd be blown away. There, there's some really cool stuff. A container resort in Joshua Tree National Park.
1: Oh, it's so fun. I was going to ask you about this. So, yeah.
0: all right. So got um, that. I mean, we're we we we're, we're working for these, uh, these guys that live in Joshua. One of them is an architect and is on converting a container to an Airbnb. Mm-hmm. And now we've taken that from a single Airbnb and we're building a whole resort, uh, out of, uh, out of his containers. You know, we're, we're working on a, a, independent hotel in San Luis Obispo, uh, that was the original site of the first motel in the United States. And we're paying tribute to that and going, you know, back with that, but also giving it a modern, uh, you know, modern touch and, we're working on resorts. Uh, we're working on glamping uh, opportunities and helping people build brands in the glamping space. There is a lot coming, or you know, a lot on the horizon here, and it's all fun. I mean, if I look back now, Steve, when I was ten, you know, seeing that GM walk through the the lobby and wanting to be in that business for some reason, I'm having as much fun today as I've ever had doing this and creating and you know seeing the consumer uh, happy with the experience is what drives me every day. Uh, And I'm a consumer too, and I love it, right? And I get in the mud bath and I, you know, I do all the things that we're doing in our hotels and I absolutely love all of it. And I hope that the consumer, you know, loves it as much as I do. Because to me, that's what drives average rate. And that's what drives, uh, you know, occupancy and revenues and GOP and NOI and ROI to the owner. Right, but it all starts in the operation. But unless you understand the big picture, it's hard to uh, rationalize why why you are working sixteen-hour days or why you're doing what you're doing. There's a real purpose, uh, and it, it is a business, but it's a fun business, man. I, I wouldn't do anything else. Listen,
1: you've got me excited because some of the stuff you touched on is what I'm most excited about in the industry. So. I got a little chills as you were mentioning some of the projects you were talking on. We have to talk right. offline about one or two of them, but yeah. you know, I know you've got a lot going on Kirk and I'm grateful for the time you spent with me today, but if young Kirk was coming in, he'd just gotten out of the country club and was starting in one of your hotels today. What advice would you be giving young Kirk as he starts out in hospitality now?
0: Focus on your mentors because senior executives love giving advice to junior people because they're going to retire. And this business has to go on, right? It will go on for a long, long time. Uh, It will continue to change, but it's going to change because of the impact that the younger generation coming up is going to have on the business. So I think senior executives understand they need younger people. They need great ideas. They want to mentor and challenge younger people. Uh, So if I was giving Kirk that advice today, it would be focus on those relationships. Uh, because they're going to come back time and time and time again throughout your career. Don't burn bridges. Work real hard and focus on those relationships.
1: I think that's great advice for anybody listening. If you're not driving, rewind that last minute. I think that's a great piece of advice to end on. Kirk, very grateful for you spending our time with us today. And if somebody wanted to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: Kay Petterson at SightlineHotels.com.
1: Perfect. Well, Kirk, once again, thank you. Thank you, Steve. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.